hey everyone. Welcome to episode 282 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with a fellow night photographer hailing from the great state of California, Marsha Kirschbaum. Marsha and I had a wonderful time talking about our adventures in the landscape and what compels us to photograph the night sky, as well as our love for the natural world, plus many, many, many more topics. So stay tuned to the end. Before we get started on the episode, I want to tell you about my favorite platform for sharing, viewing, and discussing all things nature photography, and that would be Nature Photographers Network. NPN is the place to go if you're serious about nature photography. There are lots of exclusive articles, awesome Ask Me Anything chats with industry-leading artists, critique forums where some of the best photographers in the business offer critique on your images, and incredible discounts on software, tutorials, books, and lots more. It's just a wonderful community. Don't just take it from me. Listener David Mullen wrote in to say, Hey Matt, I just want to thank you for mentioning NPN on your podcast. I've learned more about landscape photography in a month than the previous several years combined. Keep plugging it on your show as it's an invaluable resource. You can join NPN for just $49 per year by going to npn.link forward slash f-stop. You can also get a 10% off your subscription by using the code PAIN10. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Marsha Kirschbaum, it's great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm really quite honored to be here. I've been a fan for a, a long time. Yeah, awesome. It's uh it's always good to talk to somebody who also has a love affair with the night sky. Yes. Uh you get me started on that and there's just no telling when it'll end. It's it is one of my most favorite subjects and one of my most favorite places to be. Yeah, I mean, we'll for sure dive into that more. But I was just going to say, like, I used to be obsessed with night photography, like 2012, 2013. That's basically all I did. I think I burned myself out a little bit. (laughs) You know. It does take a certain amount of stamina. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like, you know, restless nights and, and... you know, you show up to work the next day and you're like, everyone's like, what's wrong? It's like, oh, nothing. I'm good. <laughs> Two hours of sleep, if at all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, before we dive into all that, um, let's just real quick go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Marsha Kirschbaum and I'm a landscape photographer with a penchant for the night, so mostly astral landscape. Uh, I started my photography, the night photography, about um, oh, 10 years ago. And I just, after that first lesson, I just never looked back. Um, I was born and raised in Alaska and uh, graduated high school there. And so night was kind of weird there because it was either all night, all winter, (laughs) and then all day, all summer. Um, But as a child, I used to sit and uh, draw pictures of the stars. And uh, so 
I've been photographing on and off ever since, well, I would say since eighth grade, um, when I had a, a, a class, a photography class, and um, I really, I picked up the camera and I loved it. I loved developing, uh, it was film back then, and um, I didn't really know what I was doing technically, but I loved developing that film and just seeing those images gradually appear. And uh, I spent a lot of time with my father in the darkroom, too, because he enjoyed photography. Oh, cool. And so, uh, gosh, I, um, I would take my camera with me pretty much everywhere. But I was more of a documentary type of photographer. And then when I met my husband who was a professional photographer and made a living in photography, I thought, why bother? And I set my camera down. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, he was just so good and so knowledgeable. I thought, well, you know, anything that's happening, he'll take a picture of it and it'll be so much better than, than what I could do. And it wasn't until uh, we went on a trip to China and I thought, you know, I need to take a picture. I need to take a camera because my pictures, I don't know why I just dawned on me, are going to be different than his. <laughs> we have different subjects. And so I picked up the camera again at that time and I never looked back. Um, I was had a little Lumix point and shoot. And my husband was trying to teach me about aperture settings. I was on P prior to this time. And finally, one day he was looking, we were sitting on the bed in, in China and he was looking at my photographs and he says, you know, I think it's time for you to start shooting raw. <laughs> and I go, raw what? <laughs> and so um, then I got a better digital camera and I have just, been practicing the art ever since and I have a, a, a website which I don't keep up too often and I'm on social media primarily Flickr um, and a little bit of Facebook and a little bit of Twitter. That's awesome but I'm curious you know when you decided when you were going on that trip to China what was it about the excitement of going to China that inspired you to, to change your mind and pick up the camera again? Well I knew first of all it was with a Chinese-speaking tour company. We were supposed to go with the English company, um, but they couldn't get enough people. And so um, my husband's father's partner was Chinese, and he said, well, just come on the tour with us, and I'll translate for you. And I thought, okay, and that actually turned out to be a good thing. But I realized that this was probably the most exotic place that I had been to to date. And, you know, you hear all kinds of things about China and, the, the you know, the communists and how you can't do anything and people have no rights. And, um, and I just thought, you know, if I don't take my camera, I'm really going to be remiss uh, in documenting what I find interesting. My husband is a people photographer, and I'm, I'm primarily landscape with some people in it for scale. And I just, I knew that I had to take the camera with me. 
And I'm so glad that I did because our, our photography is entirely different. And that was a real um, wake-up call to me that even though Howard is such a good photographer, I could still photograph and we would have different things and we would both bring different things to our photography. Yeah, absolutely. And because I was such a beginner at it, um, I mean, up until this time, I'd been using P. And I decided when um, we came back from this trip and Howard said, you know, I think you should use my D70. Uh, and I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. That's pretty, pretty big time. <laughs> And my girlfriend said, Marsha, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> Take that camera. And so I did. And I thought, you know what? I've been shooting on P most of the time for most of my photography. I'm going to shoot on manual from now on so that I learn the camera. And I did. I shot everything manual. And then with night photography, it's all manual. And it wasn't only until about... A year ago, two years ago, that I actually found a use or was comfortable with aperture priority <laughs> and shutter so, priority. <laughs> it's so funny because uh, so much of my early career with a DSLR, when I first got a DSLR, was doing night photography. And like you said, it's you have to use manual or else you can't. I mean, I suppose it's possible to take night photos in another mode, but... It wouldn't work out usually pretty well, but um, I think entering the photography space uh, as primarily a night photographer with a DSLR forces you to learn photography the right way. You know, like you have a really good understanding of shutter speed and ISO and, and um, I, I personally, I think it's probably the, one of the best ways to learn photography is by starting out as a night photographer. Uh, I agree. Um, because not only do you have to learn to use your camera uh, and learn what all those settings are, but you also have to learn about the lenses that um, you need to use and what works for what for for certain things. And there was something I was going to say, and it skipped my mind. Maybe it'll come back. I was just going to say, and you have to learn it all in the dark. <laughs> That's know? what I was going to say. I, you have to, and I used to practice in the closet. Yeah. I would close my closet door so it was nice and dark. And I would feel my camera so that I would know where all the buttons were that did things. Um, I was pretty good at changing lenses in the dark, but I don't really recommend that because it's um, too many mistakes can happen and, and you could ruin some equipment. But I remember uh, when the, I think it was the Nikon D4 came out, it had those illuminated buttons and I was like, oh, that's awesome for night photography. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, I've taped over anything that illuminates Right, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, the intervalometer, any buttons like the, there's a, um, oh, it's like, I think it's an infrared that shoots out to help you focus. And it's still on, even if you're in manual, I've taped over that. 
uh, anything that has light. And um, you really appreciate that when you're, say, photographing next to somebody who hasn't taped that over. And you're looking at your shots and you're going, what's that little red dot? Or if you're in the snow, it really, really magnifies that stuff up. So, yeah, you just tape everything over and just learn to do it in the dark. That's right. But your eyes adjust. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, So that you can see, especially in really, really dark sky areas where there's a lot of stars, your eyes adjust almost to the point, if if the stars are really bright and the Milky Way is out, where it's the ground is lit by starlight. Oh yeah, it's, it's hard sure. to imagine, but it but it really is. It's wonderful. It's it's magical. Yeah, no, it's there's there's quite a bit of ambient light. That's what a lot of people are like. Oh, that there's no way that's photoshopped. And it's like no, really. Like if you expose it for long enough, there's plenty of ambient light to um, to record data. Well, even even without the exposures, I'm just talking about moving around a little bit in your sure. area. Yeah, you can. I mean, you don't see in color. Everything is sort of black and white, and it, it's, you know, you, you don't see like you do in daylight, but you can see. And it's amazing how much you can see with, with good starlight. I, oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, I think we've established at this point that you primarily photograph the night sky. Why have you chosen that as your main subject? You know, I've always loved the night sky even when i was a kid i used to go out at night in my little orange snowsuit and i would sit on top of a hill that was right next to our house and i had my sketchbook and i would draw pictures of the stars and my mother who's has wonderful curiosity and and i think i've inherited that from her she would when I come back inside she'd say okay you know rest for a bit and then go back out again and draw the same stars it was the Big Dipper because Big Dipper you know was on the Alaskan flag and she says see if anything has changed and sure enough you know that was my first experience with earth rotation (laughs) the Big Dipper was in a different spot in the sky and um so, yeah, I drew pictures of the stars. Uh, some of my first drawings were of night in the stars. And there's just something about being outside at night. And sometimes there's an incredible silence. And the only thing you hear might be your heart beating. This is if you're, you know, by yourself. Um it's a one it's almost like a meditation you're out there and you have to be or at least i tend to be more in the moment than i am when i'm say in the daylight at home um you want to you're careful how you move because you don't want to trip over anything or worse yet knock your tripod you hear you hear things that you might not hear being in the same place in the daytime, like the little scurrying of mice or the little high chirp chirp of of mice, um, something going through the bushes like deer. Uh, gosh, there was one time I was out and I was in an area where there were a lot of barn owls. Oh, yeah. 
and my intervalometer was on, you know, the music so that you could hear it would chirp a little bit each time it would um, do another picture. And the barn owls, I don't know whether they thought that was mice or what, but they would swoop down over my head. And then once they realized that I wasn't something to eat, then they would go back up. But it would happen several times. And one time it was close enough that I I turned off the chirping in my uh, intervalometer and, and they quit swooping. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned uh, deer rustling in the, in the bushes. For me, my brain always says, I know that's probably a deer, but it could be a mountain lion. Yeah, I think about that too. Um, there's only been one time when I've really backed off, and that was when something was following me. Oh, yeah. I was actually with my husband, and we were walking down a trail, and whatever it was was following us at a distance. I never got to see it, but I heard it, and it growled. Yeesh. And finally, I said, Howard, I something is not right. I don't feel comfortable. We're going to turn around and go back up into a wider area because we were in like a little canyon. And so anything that was down there that we couldn't see would be above us. Right. And I never did see the animal, but it turned around and followed us back up. And we were in a rather large parking lot. Um, was still a view and I was still doing I think I was after a comet that night and whatever it was stayed hidden in the bushes but it would growl every so often so I went home on Google and I tried you know mountain lion uh, bobcat trying to figure out what sound that might have been it never was definitive but yeah Yeah, you see the eyes Oh, yeah, the eyes. Yeah, I've I've had a couple of those experiences over the years, and it's always frightening. (laughs) Yeah, I I was out on the coast, and I was by myself, and I had to walk, I guess, a couple of miles to the spot that I wanted to go to, and, and I got my pictures and everything, and I was walking back, and I saw these eyes, and it was the first time I'd seen eyes, and they were lit by my headlamp. And, but they were pretty high off the ground. And I thought, but you know, that's too big to be a deer. And so we had cell coverage and I called my husband up and I said, Howard, there's something watching me (laughs) in the distance. Can I just talk till I figure out what it is? (laughs) And if I call, say, call 911, please do it. And this is where I'm at. And it turned out to be an elk. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that was a kind of a relief. <laughs> I've had a few encounters with elk too. Yeah. In fact, I was, I had um, photographed sunset in autumn one time up on this high mesa and I had to hike back down like four miles to my truck. And uh, about halfway down, I ran into a mom elk and two babies. And it was in this weird spot where it was all like marshy and stuff. And I couldn't just go around them. And it was, yeah, it was not a good experience. So did, would you just stand there until they turned around and went away, or did you go shoo, um, shoo? I did whatever I could to try to get them to, to get off the trail because I didn't want to get too close because I didn't know yeah, what she was going to do. Yeah, so I just made a bunch of noise, and I was like, 
throwing stuff in their direction and eventually it worked out, but yeah, it's scary. Being by you yourself come up on night. skunks? I have not had that experience yet, thankfully. There's a lot of skunks out of Point Reyes. Oh, I bet. And you really kind of have to watch out for them. Those are the eyes that are down low. And um, at night, especially in springtime or breeding season, they're they're out. And yeah, you really don't want to accidentally startle one of those. Yeah, no, thank you. Well, I'm curious, um, how has photographing the night sky ignited your curiosity for other things in the landscape? Wow. Um, weather. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to find the night sky if you've got clouds, but then if you've got clouds, then maybe you can do something else. Um, and it's not just weather, but it's how is the wind blowing? Um, are you, have you got stratus? Is the temperature dew point close to each other? So you're going to get fog. Um, even if it says no clouds, but you look at the humidity and it's really high, you know, you're going to have to protect your lens from moisture and whatever you're looking at is going to be slightly hazy. Uh, gosh, um, plants, you don't really want to run into poison oak. Uh, so knowing which plants you can touch and which ones you can't, um, gosh, you know, I don't know. It's like, my mom used to take me uh, when I was a child. We would go once a week and we would pick what I called a mountain. Some of it was mountains. And we would go walk it, hike it. And my mom would give me like this lessons in, this was in Alaska, on plants and rocks and water, berries, bears. We had to watch out for the bears. And so I've always been curious about all of this stuff, uh, whether it's it's daylight or night. Um, that's a tough question to answer because it's like the chicken or the egg, you know? Yeah, right. Well, how did that kind of upbringing and education inform your approach to photography? Well, for me, photography, um, I want to know about what I photograph. And so if I'm photographing, uh, say it's in the night and there is a star out there and I don't know what it is, then I, then I'll try to go find it and I'll look it up. Or, uh, when they talk about conjunctions for planets, um, you know, I'll look that up to see, uh, I volunteered at the, um, Chabot Space, uh, and Science Center for a while, um, and to learn about telescopes and to learn about glass um, and learn what I was seeing really up close. Uh, if I take, you know, abandoned houses uh, and falling down civilizations or the remnants of civilizations are, are fascinating. And it seems like uh, elegant decay is a magnet for photographers, myself included. But I always want to know who were the people that lived there? Why did they leave? What was life like? And in fact, there was a place um, up uh, in, in an area called Shandon, which is in California off of one of the main highways. 
and there was this old ranch um, and ranch house that was, I, it was imploding. It was following down. And I met the owner of that property and I asked for permission to go in and photograph. And they said, sure. And he says, but don't go in the house. There's a beehive in there. so i i said who was the name of the original person that owned the house and they said mcmillan so i photographed the house and it was really neat it had you know old-time construction with lath and and tufts of uh insulation and the rooms are really tiny and there was still kind of paint left on the walls and and what was left of the windows was that kind of glass you know where it slowly flows down and there was an outhouse out there um because there was no plumbing at the time so i went and looked up the name of the people and i had to do quite a bit of research to find out but it turns out that they were one of the original wheat farmers uh in that area and this is when uh wheat was still harvested by horse 20 um 20 team horses and this guy had invented um, some uh, piece of equipment that would make harvesting much more um, uh, much easier and then they talked about it would take three days to get the wheat to the coast to the uh, San Simeon where the Hearst Pier was and it was just all this background and and they raised their kids there and one of the descendants actually became a, a an activist for saving condors and uh, conservation yeah of condors and wrote this huge paper about them and so it just all of this information just made that house more than just elegant decay there was a family that lived there and they had a life and they did interesting things. And um, so I like doing that with my photography. If, if I take a picture of a beach, the sand on the beach, I got a book uh, on what causes those sand patterns and how that tells you about the waves what kind of waves they were to make the sand and why the sand disappears um, and why each winter you'll start to see rocks where the waves have washed away all the sand and rocks that are taller than I am. And then by midsummer, all that sand has come back and those rocks have disappeared. And yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's for me, that's one of the coolest things about photography, nature and landscape photography specifically is, I suppose you could make it really about any form of photography, but how it it kind of forces you to take interest in things that you normally wouldn't be all that interested in, but because you made a photograph of it, it's all of a sudden like, I really want to know more about whatever that thing is. And then you go down this rabbit hole and, and then it's like, and then the photo means even more to you as the photographer. And then of course, if you're really skilled, you can like, piece together a nice story that goes along with the image and and hopefully convey that story through the image. So I think there's a lot you can do with that kind of marriage of ideas and the image making. Well, when, when you do your mountain climbing and your hiking and stuff, I mean, don't you kind of research the area first or do you just go at it blind? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, so I'm, I'm obsessed with maps like I just love maps. I've always been that way since I was a little kid. 
And I think that's what how my parents got me to shut up and stop asking questions when we'd be driving to go camping is they'd give me a topo map and they'd be like, okay, find these things that are on the map out there and tell, and we'll tell you if you're right kind of a thing. <laughs> and, um, but what I love to do when I'm mountain climbing is um, like, I am all about uh, identification of peaks and, you know, like, okay, I'm here. So that's this mountain and that's that mountain and that's that mountain. And then eventually you do enough of that. And it's like, Oh yeah, I did that mountain in June of 2013 and I was with this person and oh, remember that crazy thunderstorm that came through? And so for me, it's like it, it evokes all of this memory. And so it's a whole other layer of things for me, but, but yeah, it's kind of the same idea too. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. Well, particularly for night photography, um, you do kind of want to research the area. Well, I do. I prefer to scout it in the daytime to make sure I'm not going to walk off any cliffs or um, if there's, um, you know, something that I have to watch out for or also just to, to see my subject and, and take a bearing to it and and see where I need to be if I want a certain kind of image, what lens I might want to use and stuff. Um very rarely do I go into a night scene cold. I'm about 50-50 when it comes to that. I don't know. I think there's something fun for me about making a night photo sight unseen and trying to make sense of a composition in the dark. But I'm also a little bit of a hard-headed uh, masochist. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, I've done that. Um and some of them just didn't come out so good. <laughs> oh, yeah, I would say, like, you probably have a much higher likelihood of making a better photo if you scout it first. <laughs> but I do find that um, the night sort of simplifies your compositions. It certainly can, for sure, yeah. Well, let's um, let's talk a little bit about light pollution. Um, I feel like it's one of those things that, you know, unless you're a night photographer, you might not even know what light pollution is. So maybe let's first talk a little bit about what it is. And then I'd love to hear you talk about um, how light pollution has changed in your lifetime and mm -hmm. impacted your ability to enjoy night, the night sky. Well, I think at its simplest, light pollution is any light that keeps you from seeing the stars. And we, when I say we, our big cities have a lot of it. Um, and it's kind of a shame. Well, it's a real shame, actually, because I think as we lose our night skies, to me, that's a resource. It's a precious resource like any other resource. Um, I think we lose our sense of place in the universe. Uh, by not seeing those stars. It, and it's also hard to study. Um, and it seems like, as I don't know why, but it seems like we feel, we as a people feel, that we need more and more light to be safe. And that's not true. Um, I don't think it's true. We just need better ways to use our light. Um, there's the uh, International Dark Sky Association, which has got tremendous uh, educational materials on their website. 
And we can mitigate so much of our light by doing simple things. The two biggest simple, the simplest things are putting a hood over our light so it doesn't point upwards, so it points downwards, and using motion detectors um, so that the light doesn't come on until somebody is there. There was a, uh, there's a place in, um, Eastern Sierra called, uh, Mono Lake. Um, pretty famous lake for its salinity and its unique wildlife there. And there's a little town called Levining, which is pretty tiny. And if you look at the dark sky maps, it has, uh, very little light footprint, far less than Mammoth, which is a big ski resort town. And recently, um, well, it's it's actually been on the books for a while, but there's been a push to build a big, huge um, a hotel and center for gathering, etc. And there was quite a fight about it because it would change the light of Lee Vining, which actually has very little uh, light footprint. It's getting more, but this would really make it um, big. And I sat in on several city council meetings, even though I don't live there. I photographed there a lot. And uh, actually, there was a lot of photographers that that sat in on those (laughs) city council meetings. And it was interesting. I mean, the town of Levining really kind of needed, I mean, they could use the economic boost. And the owner of the property had actually gotten permit to develop this quite a long time ago. Um, But it just took him till now. And he was submitting plans. And the city council, it was more than just the city council. It's kind of a regional council, was kept making them to go back to the drawing board on what they can do to mitigate the light footprint. And I learned all kinds of things. Um... One that you could have for walkways. You didn't need these huge, tall lights to see your, to see your way, uh, to your hotel room. Your lights could be maybe two and a half, three feet tall. Again, with downward pointing, um, to, to splash the light on what you're going to walk on. They also talked about windows because windows will reflect light. And they, um, particularly if they're straight up and down. So they talked about putting the windows at a slight angle so that the light would not be reflected outwards. And that was something new for me. I'd never heard that. Um, anyway, the hotel or the development refused to do any of these. Uh, it's still stalled. Um, and uh, frankly, I hope that they don't develop it. He'll probably sell it to somebody else and say, you try it. But we do need, as a people, need to watch our light, not only for ourselves and our relationship to the stars, but a lot of animals um, use, ourselves included, use the night to get rest. And it's very hard to sleep with uh, light, what they call it, light trespass. And that's where some neighbors got this huge light on all the time 
in their front yard or backyard and it spills over into your windows. And unless you have blackout curtains, you're stuck with that light. You can't go to sleep with the birds and wake up with the birds. You've got this darn light. And, and speaking of the birds, <laughs> those poor things, they start chirping all night long because to them it's daylight. And that's really hard on them. Also, the, they use, uh, uh, during migration, they use the night and the starlight. And um, our big high-rises that seem to leave lights on even though nobody is there, I don't know, maybe it's for the janitor, um, the birds are starting to fly towards the city cities instead of their migration points. I mean, there's just a lot of things that not having the dark skies that come with the sunset and sunrise that are um, we're just beginning to find out about the effects of. And there was a dark sky place that I used to, well, I still go to, um, it's Point Reyes. And it's because it's one of the closest places to where I live in the Bay Area. I mean, now it's gotten so light, you can hardly see um, Orion. <laughs> the three, and that's pretty bright, or was pretty bright. But our skies have gotten brighter. So I will drive the 90 minutes that it takes me to get to the coast. And um, if the fog is on the city, then the lights from uh, San Francisco Bay Area don't disturb too much. If your celestial objects that you're trying to photograph are west, you're good to go um, as long as there's no fog or moisture because there's nothing between you and Hawaii. And I used to be able to get the Milky Way in early season going over Tomales Bay, which is an east-west um, kind of, actually east-southeast kind of uh, bow. But now the lights have gotten so bright. I went out there, oh, I guess about eight months ago, and I went to my usual spot, and I didn't even bother. It was so bright. Well, there's um, a few people in Point Reyes that have gotten together that are aware of this situation and are aware of their dark skies out there or and they are trying to get um, a dark sky designation from IDA, which is tough to get because not only do you have to educate people about their lighting situations, but I believe you actually have to have an ordinance passed that talks about lighting. And we'll see how well that happens because that's the whole county of Marin, which is pretty affluent. And um, I, pretty conservative. We'll see. Um, but a lot has to be education first. Yeah. Well, and I think if people want to learn more about all that and the impacts of light pollution and what people can do, a great resource, like you said, is International Dark Sky Association. It's darksky.org. And we'll put a link in the show notes. I was going to ask about what you think people can do, but in one of the things I think people can do is uh, get involved at the local level. I'm actually the chair of our planning commission here where I live, and we have a dark sky ordinance. And whenever we have projects that come through for development, 
we have to make sure that they meet the dark sky ordinance. And then if, and then the construction project happens and then you go check it out and they still have really bright lights and you're like, okay, you're not following the ordinance. So it's a big deal. And, you know, I think it's, I think the best impact we can have is to get involved. Yeah. Get involved and education. Cause I think a lot of people just aren't even, they aren't aware of it. Yeah, they aren't aware of, of our night sky at all and the impact that darkness has on life. When you have a story of like you ran into some people and they were like, what are you doing? And you're like, I'm photographing the Milky Way. Oh yeah. That was out at Heart's Desire Beach. My husband and I hiked in to this little cove um, because I thought, oh, this would be a great place. I could do a star circle over here. This was early on. And the only way you could get to it was by hiking or kayak. It's a campsite for kayakers only. And we thought, well, since we're not spending the night, we could go in there. And we did. And we met a group. And they, you know, I was setting up my cameras. We asked if we could stand next to their fire because it was really cold, cold for California anyway. (laughs) And they asked us, what are you doing? And I said, I'm photographing um, the Milky Way. And they said, what's that? And my jaw kind of dropped and I bit my tongue because these were students from Stanford University. And I just assumed that everybody knew about the Milky Way, even if they hadn't seen it. That was kind of an eye opener for me. And so I thought, okay, well, here's an opportunity. And I explained to them what the Milky Way was. It was a galaxy, and our Earth was in the Milky Way. Our sun was part of that galaxy. And if you look at that milky kind of strip there, that is our Milky Way. And and then you show them on the camera um, because the camera sensor is so much more sensitive, and they can see it. And they go, wow, I never knew that was out there. And I think that's what night photographers can really, really um, show what is out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's a really good way to use your night photography. Yeah, and you, you said something earlier that really resonated with me about the importance of the night sky. And it's, um, it's about our relationship with where we stand in the universe. And without that, um, that point of reference being the dark sky above us and all this, you know, the massive stars and everything, I feel like that shifts a little bit. Um, and I actually, one of my favorite photographs I that I have that's of the Milky Way, I actually titled it Infinitesimal because when I look at it, it makes me, reminds me of like, I'm just this tiny little person you know, underneath this huge, massive universe of stars. And, and there's actually something kind of awesome about that feeling, you know? It's a spiritual feeling, you know, whether or not you believe in God or not. To me, it doesn't have anything to do with that. But there is a, oh, I, I, well, spiritual is the only word I can think of for it. Yeah. And I think it also should, if it doesn't, make you appreciate how remarkable and what a miracle our planet is. There's no guarantee that there's another one out there like it. That's pretty fascinating. And unless you 
for me anyway, unless I see it in the context of the rest of this universe, it's too easy to get into our own little worlds and forget about global warming, forget about the fact that we're in a drought. And for California, it's pretty darn bad also for the um, places like New Mexico. And, you know, we, we launch rockets. We want to go to the moon. We want to go to Mars. And I think that's great. But I think that we shouldn't destroy our planet and find someplace else to live <laughs> because there might not be any place else as remarkable where we can live breathing our air. I mean, we step out the door and we see the sunrise and most days we take that for granted. No, oh, totally. Shifting gears a little, because um, we could talk about that for like four hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, what are some of your concerns about safety as it relates to photographing the night sky? And, and what are some of the ways that you mitigate some of those concerns? Well, if I go out by myself, and I do, I would say about 50% of the time, um, it's hard to get people to go out all night and shoot. I do have a few yeah. good friends that do do that, and we yeah, do you get together. Do, you want to do what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, in my non-photographer friends will take a look at the pictures and say, oh, I want to go out there, I want to go out there. And then, you know, an hour later, they're looking at their watches. And so when do you think you'll be finished? <laughs> so I do go out a lot by myself. And um, I try to scout first where I'm going, so I will be a little bit familiar. Uh, if it's the beach, I'm checking tides and weather reports and things like that. If it's someplace where there's no communication, like up in the White Mountains or something like that, I take, um, it's a spot, It's I think Garmin owns it now, it's a little GPS Um this is the El Cheapo version where you can send pre-recorded messages and SOS and the SOS will call the regional uh, search and rescue people to, to come find you. And I'll use that and I'll check in with my husband and maybe another friend, uh, you know, when I leave camp and when I get back to camp. Um, I either want no people or lots of people. I get very nervous when just one car shows up. Um, and I think you really have to pay attention to your gut. If something says something is not right, pay attention to that and maybe call it a night and go, or go somewhere else. Um, you always, well, warm clothes because uh, it can get cold, a lot colder than you think. Uh, <laughs> headlamp extra batteries for your headlamp uh gosh yeah all that stuff is in my camera bag so i just grab my camera bag to think about extra batteries you always want extra batteries um I yeah i've got a not to plug equipment my headlamp is this i think they originally used them for caving but it's a it's a brand called phoenix and what's and it's crazy bright like wild um, but what I love about it is that um, you don't replace the batteries, you just recharge it. Mm -hmm. and, it and it's got a USB-C input. And, and then I just bring like a battery brick that I use to, you know, top off my camera battery or 
or recharge this if I need to, or my phone or my Garmin or pretty much any device that I need to recharge. So that's what I do is I, everything I take with me now, it's rechargeable. Uh, well, the batteries for mine are all rechargeable uh, batteries, yeah. nice. uh, but the headlamp itself, I have to put the rechargeable bat. It's an old headlamp. Same idea though. And I also carry a brick too. Um, and I have found in cold weather, I shoot with a Sony and that just an older Sony and it eats batteries like it was chocolate. <laughs> it's just <laughs> ridiculous. And so I carry a brick and I put it in a sock and I put the sock around my tripod with, uh, fasten it with Velcro <laughs> and it works just fine. Don't tell me you use a sock too. Well, kind of. Hold on. Let me see. I don't want to forget, um, but always file, I call it file at a flight plan. Oh, Let somebody yeah. know when you're going and when you plan to be back. Yeah, yeah, Definitely. So I used to shoot primarily with the A7R2 also, which has the ridiculously small batteries that die after two seconds. Yep. So I have this old, I had a uh, big Agnes sleeping pad that came in this stuff sack. Oh, But it has like a drawstring on it. And then I've got my anchor battery inside of it with a couple of cables that, you know, one goes USB-C, one goes micro USB for the Sony and then I do the same thing you do. I uh, I wrap that string around my tripod, and then I just and then I can just keep my camera charged constantly. But yeah, well, for a tracker, that's invaluable. And in cold weather, when I was up in Alaska for um, Aurora earlier this year, I would go through Sony battery like every seven eight minutes right. it was ridiculous and yeah. you know the aurora is just going off and battery exhausted I'm going crap <laughs> i mean what's <laughs> cool about the sony a7r2 though and the and the three and i think pretty much any sony nowadays but you can power it while it's on so like you can use the anchor battery to power the camera with a dead battery uh, yeah uh, or like a mostly dead battery. Huh. I would have to see that. I have a dummy battery that I put in and then I can fasten that to my brick or it'll run off. It has another little battery on it so that um, you can change bricks whenever they discharge. It will always keep it charged. So it's it's really good for time lapse and, and um or letting your camera run all night long. Yeah, that's the only way I could do Star Trails with my 7R2 is with this battery pack is just keeping it plugged in so that it has an external battery source. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, That's funny. You develop all these tricks as night <laughs> photographers. <laughs> well, with the thing with the sock and the little bag that you've got is if you're in real cold weather, you can slip a um, hand warmer in it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> to keep sure. it warm. What do you use for for condensation? Oh, I'm I'm so old school and and cheap. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm the same way. Like, I don't have anything special. I either. have um, <laughs> these socks that I used to wear to work that are really really thin. They're almost sheer, like uh, pantyhose. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And I put hand warmers in those, and then I tie it around my lens. 
Got it. And so far that has worked pretty well. Now I yeah. don't know if that would work for humidity like in Florida or Texas or someplace like that, but right. you know, I know I've I've seen some people have like these dew dew heaters. Dew heaters, yeah. I've never found a need for that. Um, but I'm also like you, I just figure out something else. <laughs> Well, the hand warmers work pretty good, and yeah. and they're easy to carry. And I don't know that they're just part of my pack because sometimes it just gets really cold, and you need them for your hands, let alone your lens. <laughs> yeah, night photography forces you to be pretty innovative. I remember, I remember one time. This is back when I was shooting Nikon. I I uh, left my intervalometer at home for some reason, and you know that back then I think my camera didn't have a built-in intervalometer. And so I, I use like a rubber band. A rubber band around yeah. the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a um, my very first, um, I guess you could say instructor, the very first night workshop I went to, that was one of his tricks was to put a rubber band around. Yeah, was that um, Stephen Christensen? Yeah, Stephen Christensen. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember I used to follow his site, the, what is it, the Star, Star Circle? Star Circle yeah, Star Circle Academy. I remember yeah. when I first got into photography, I would spend a lot of time on his site and also on Ben Canales' site. Yes, yes, yeah. those two too. But Stephen was, um, he was super. Um, and he had a couple of workshops. And I remember my first Milky Way workshop actually was the first time I'd ever photographed the Milky Way. And I was just like, oh my God, you know, you know what it's like to look in your viewfinder and you see that there for the very very first time yeah you're like it's what a- that's not possible <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah he, he taught me a lot he taught a lot of people a lot he was i think kind of ahead of his time in the night photography um yeah and i think he, he's still active on Flickr, isn't he um not so much a little bit but not so much he's on facebook but um, his photography is more, I think he's busy working or it, it's, he's not doing as much photography as he used to. And he's not doing any night photography either. Gotcha. Um, well, maybe this is a good segue to talk about uh, relationships with other photographers. I'm curious for you, what roles have your relationships with other photographers played in the development of your images and your approach to making images? Well, the first person I have to talk about is my husband, uh, because his patience while I was out there, he's trying to get his own images, and I'm pulling on his coattails, look at this, look at this, or it's black, what do I need to do? Open up the shutter. <laughs> have have you tried taking off. the lens cap off? Yes, exactly. Yeah, he um and he introduced me to a lot of um equipment and technology like way ahead of his way ahead of its time. I mean, he was shooting with one of the first Kodak digital cameras uh when it came out and he used to go to Rochester and um and meet with people there and so I got to see through him some of the cutting edge stuff and so in terms of it informing my photography i knew that if i could well it was feedback instant feedback which when i was photographing with film i'd have to wait and wait and wait and go oh crap that sucks 
and then try again. This was immediate feedback. And so um, through Howard and his encouragement of using digital photography and Lightroom when it first came out, Lightroom number two, <laughs> um, and he just kept pushing me towards all these things and answering my questions and stuff. And so that was really helpful. Uh, Stephen Christensen, who I actually took my first night photography class with, and that was fantastic. That just opened, I mean, before I was drawing the night, in fact, I, I, I even have a picture that I did of my first meteor shower, and I had to draw it because I didn't know how to photograph it. And Stephen taught me and a lot of other people how to photograph the night and how to photograph meteor showers too, in addition to the Milky Way. So that was pretty cool. And he was very encouraging and very patient. And and that really kind of got me started. And then another photographer, night photographer as well, though he does do some day stuff, um, has been sort of a mentor, whether he knows it or not. And that's Rick Whitaker. And he helped me. I met him through Flickr. And he helped me uh, look for the newer equipment, test stuff. If I didn't have a piece of equipment, he let me borrow it. Uh, when I was shooting my first eclipse, He, uh, I couldn't find the um, uh, filter paper to make my own filter. And he had some extra and, and he, he loaned it to me. And he's just been very generous and very giving of his time. Uh, and, and since then, we've become good friends. Uh, gosh, there have been so many people. People in my camera club have, you know, their critiques. And uh, they've helped me. And I hope that I've helped some of them learning some of the things that I have learned about night photography. I mean, the photography community is, is wonderful for the most part. Um, yeah, just for, really for generous. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, it's, I think it's important to reflect on kind of the people that helped us get to where we are. And I think for me, anyway, the important part of that reflection is thinking about, okay, how can I be that for other people as well? You know, it's, uh, how can I inspire other people and pass on some of the knowledge that's been passed on to me? And, you know, for me, this podcast is a little bit of that, but I think. But you also do workshops, don't you? Like not super common, you know, I have a full-time job. So like doing workshops on top of that. I mean, I am teaching it out of Oregon this October, but yeah, my workshop is, you know, a couple of times a year. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have quite the confidence yet to do workshops. I wouldn't mind helping somebody with a workshop. Um, oh yeah, there's a lot that can go wrong for sure. I did a, I did a one-on-one workshop last fall with this really awesome guy from Connecticut, and on our next to last day together, I got stung in the mouth by a hornet, and it like oh, completely gosh. derailed the entire afternoon. But yeah, there's it's yeah it's it's kind of nerve wracking, can be for sure. Well, I just, uh, yeah, I am, ha- I've given small talks to the camera clubs and things like that, but to actually do, and, and I would take people out, um, 
if I found the weather, but I don't have the confidence to, to do a workshop for for pay or anything like that. But well, there's makes, a certain... Um, I was just going to say, if it makes you feel any better, I used to do pretty regular night photography workshops back in like 2012, 2013, when I lived in Colorado Springs. And I remember I, I did this one that was a meteor shower workshop and I only had one person sign up and I was like, all right, let's go. And we drove all the way out like an hour and a half outside of town, you know, where the dark sky is. And it was completely overcast for the entire mm. night. Um, and so that was kind of a bummer for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like we want to feel responsible for the weather, but you really can't. <laughs> no, and he was cool with it. But yeah, it's what can you do? I mean, that that is a risk you take as a night photographer for sure. It is a neat feeling, though, when you can help somebody or have them look in the back of their viewfinder and seeing, uh, well, for me, the Milky Way for the first time and just watching that aha and that wide eyes. Um, I, I love seeing that. Yeah, That's absolutely. just. Yeah, it is. It is. A, it is a fun. It is a fun feeling. All right. Well, we're running out of time a little bit, um, but uh, I have a couple more questions for you. Um, this one is fun. So, you know, you've taken up a lot of hobbies over the years, <laughs> but photography, for some reason, has kept you engaged. What do you think it is about photography specifically that's that's kept you going for so long? Ongoing learning. Hmm. It's something new. Every time you step out that door, whether it's technique, the weather, you saw an animal, you want to know about the rocks that you found, uh, it's just ongoing learning. It's like going to school constantly. It's kind of cool. And no final exams. <laughs> yeah, and you never know what subject you're going to study. Yeah, and and also it's interesting. Most of the other things that I did um, had a competition element to it because I am kind of competitive. But it, that was always about time. And so there was no arguing. I mean, you either made the time or you didn't make the time. Or somebody made it time faster than you did. Um, with photography, I also compete. Uh, but it's different and I uh, because it's it's so subjective and that's a learning experience too yes uh, not to feel too beat up just because <laughs> you didn't make it somewhere <laughs> yeah and like having a having the ability to look at your work compared to the work that was chosen and making a decision on you know how could I maybe improve on my work or what could I do differently in terms of curating my selections? See, that's or, learning again. Exactly. Yeah. It's all, yeah. and it's personal learning. It's like becoming a better person because you kind of have to put the ego aside for a minute and, mm -hmm. you know, you got to, you know, maybe learn to take some criticism and that's going to bleed over into all kinds of different parts of your life too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I would say learning satisfying my curiosity it just keeps driving me every time i take a picture i want to know more i love that so yeah that's i think probably well 
I wanted to be an artist when I was a kid. And mom says, you can't make a living that way. I said, oh, okay. And I became something else. But, you know, as soon as I retired, actually a little bit before I retired, I went back to the art, which was my photography. Yeah. I don't think we ever talked about it, but what did you do before you were retired? I was a legal secretary for 40 years. (laughs) And litigation, everything was time uh, deadlines. It was kind of a high-stress job, but it was also a learning experience, too. I mean, it was fascinating. Um, But then I was glad to be retired. (laughs) How How did your career in the legal field influence your path in photography at all, if at all? Um, I would say it certainly made me photograph at night more often because I was busy during the day. But I don't, uh, I would say organizationally, I was able to use those skills uh, with my photography to a limited extent in terms of research, learning how to research or knowing how to research in some organization. Um, I had really, really good bosses. Um, I could tell them, hey, there's the first Caesar tonight. I'm probably not going to get to bed till about six o'clock in the morning. Can I come in at 11? I'll still work the eight hours. And they go, yeah, sure. Show us a couple pictures. <laughs> so I was lucky. I was very lucky. You said your organizational skills have helped you. Is your, is your Lightroom catalog like a, like a masterpiece? Uh, no. <laughs> It starts that way. It started, well, no, it didn't start that way because I had no idea how to organize the visual. And there were different um, schools of thought at the Mm -hmm. time. Yes. Um, But man, I love that keywording. That has just saved me so many times. That is one of the first things I do is I upload and I keyword. And then after that, I may or may not get to some editing. But the keywording. Do you ever do batch keywording on import? Uh, Yes, actually, I do. Yeah, I do that a lot too. Just, I mean, it helps get you started. Yeah, fast keywording and a few brief edits, and it also it tells it where to the different um, uh, drives to send it to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's cool. So yeah, it sounds like you got some pretty good systems in place because of that. (laughs) We'll see. I mean, so far so good, but then knock on wood, they haven't failed yet. That's when you really tell if your systems are good. (laughs) Yeah, no, well, you'll you'll know if your systems are good when you have your first hard drive crash. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And I've had like four of them over the years, so um, I learn something new every time, but yeah. Well, hopefully between Time Machine and Backblaze, and then I have another uh, uh, raid that they go Oh, you're on. fine. One of those, hopefully, will... Plenty plenty of redundancy. You're good. Yeah, that's my husband again. He did that for a living. Right, yeah. <laughs> he, he consulted with archivists and stuff on how to save their... So you, so you didn't have to learn the hard way, like some of us had, like... Yeah, I've heard some horror stories from people. I have too. I have too. Like a friend of mine had all of his hard drives literally like in his car and they were all stolen. (gasps) No offsite backing up? No offsite backup. He literally lost all of his photos that he's ever taken. And this was like 
three years ago and he's been a photographer for like 20 years. <laughs> I guess the only spin that you could put on it would be an opportunity to try it differently. <laughs> yeah, wow. for sure. That oh, would that be, might... I'd be devastated. I'd need a psychologist or a psychiatrist for a oh, couple yeah. of weeks after that. Heavy drugs. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Lots, lots of booze and yeah, exactly. Oh, that's horrible. And that's Kleenexes. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I've, I have one more topic and this one, uh, we'll just put a like a little trigger warning on this one. Cause it's controversial. It could be, I don't know. We'll see, but we're going to talk about editing and, and all that fun stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some people love that and some people hate that. So if you don't like that stuff, maybe skip ahead, whatever. But, you know, so at the risk of uh, opening a huge can of worms, I know that you did want to talk about uh, digital art. And um, I'm happy to allow that to happen, even though we have <laughs> covered it extensively on the podcast. What are your personal approaches to making night photography images and why? Well, for night photography, it's pretty much documentary, or I try the hardest I can to make a documentary. I do not mix and match um, focal lengths. If I want my moon to appear large next to my foreground, then I back up, you know, sometimes a mile or two. I just, I like to use everything with the same tripod, same camera, same lens. The only thing I might do now that the parks, uh, a lot of the national parks have um, said no light painting of any kind or even low level lighting, then I might do um, a, a dusk long exposure and blend that in but it's still in the same place. I really try to make it as authentic as the camera can see it. Um, I know other people don't. For art's sake, they might put that large moon in uh, with a, a wider angle foreground. And, you know, whatever their reasons that's fine. Maybe it gives them the feeling that when they saw that fr- that moon first rise and it just looked so huge. I get that, but it's not for me. That said, when I'm out there at night by myself sometimes, my mind just, um, uh, it's like a little creative door opens. And sometimes I will put together composites of scenes from the same area um the one frozen is is similar to that and it's totally digital art totally and uh i say it's digital art i very rarely post those kinds of things mainly because i don't want people thinking that i'm doing something um I don't know, how do you say it? I'm compositing my night images or I'm putting something in my night images that wasn't there. Would would you say that? It means a lot. Not to put words in your mouth, but would you say it's because you want your audience to believe that the images that you're showing them are things that you actually experienced or that your camera actually captured? or That the camera actually captured 
that the foreground was there, the celestial objects were there. They are the same size relative to each other. And if your eyes were sensors, you would see the same thing. Um, yeah, it, uh, you know, it's funny. And Stephen Christensen was largely responsible for that. Uh, building that sense of, um, I guess, ethics, integrity. And I know a lot of photographers, night photographers that do think that way. And then on social media, I've seen some that um, take are a little more liberal with their night scenes, which is fine. But personally, I think you should mention that so you don't have somebody run out there and say, gee, how come that moon looks so tiny compared to that tree? When I saw so-and-so's picture, it was the size of the tree or it was bigger than the tree. Um, I don't know. You used a a pretty important word there that I think resonates for me, and that's integrity. I think for me, it's like if you're going to tell somebody that this is what this is and then it's not, like that's just not a very – that's lacking integrity. Like, you know, so – I don't think you should do that with anything. Right, anything I mean, in life, actually, right. like nobody, nobody likes to be lied to. Anyway, that that's that's sort of my feeling about it, and and I um, I get kind of irritated when people try to pass that off as not because uh, people night photographers work really really hard at planning to get those shots that they do. And, you know, a lot of things have to go right. The weather has to go right. Uh, You have to have a place to stand that's going to give you the subject uh, sky relationship the way you want it. Um, You have to know where that subject is going to rise, whether it's Andromeda, the moon, the Milky Way. And if you want it in front of or beside your foreground, and it's not there yet, you have to plan for it to be there. And that takes a lot of calculation or at least an app that's going to tell you that. And it gets even more complex when you start using a tracker. Uh, so I, I just feel like if somebody's going to look at something, that all that hard work should be honored. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, anyone who's ever listened to the podcast knows I'm going to agree with what you said, of, of course. And you know, to dispel a myth, like I, I personally find a lot of digital art to be really awesome. Like it looks amazing. There's obviously a tremendous amount of creativity that goes into the creation of some of that stuff. And obviously um, a lot of those individuals have spent a lot of time learning uh, not only the capture, but also the craft of, you know, creating those images in Photoshop. And like, that's, for sure, like that's a skill and that takes talent and takes hard work. It's a different kind of hard work. But and I think they should be proud of it and say so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I think, and I, I, I don't have any issues with it. I just, I have issues with it. Like when people do like what you're just describing when they pass it off. Yeah. Cause it kind of diminishes what everyone else has, is doing. Yeah. And you know, God, that's a lot of training and hard work. (laughs) It's like somebody's going to just paste something in there and said they did it, you know, it's like, 
All right. Well, we've tackled that one. And welcome back, listener. If you um, fast forward it, you glazed over. <laughs> you're like, not that topic again. I can't believe he's asking that question again. To be fair, though, that's something you did want to talk about. So, and I want to honor your wishes. So, well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I just want people out there to know how hard that night photographers do work to do the things that they do. Yeah. Okay. I have a couple more final things. Tell us about some of the ways that you've promoted your work over the last couple of years and what have you been the most proud of? I would say um, Facebook and Flickr have sort of started the ball rolling. And one creative instructor, Becky Jaffe, um, she almost has a cult following. She's a photographer and she teaches photography, but she teaches creativity. She doesn't teach you how to use your camera, but she gets you to think and she gives these assignments. And, um, one of them, she, you, she would give three assignments and you had to pick two. And in one, she encouraged me and in, introduced me to, um, a venue that was looking for a show or that was interviewing for a show. Mm. And that was my first show. And I had fun selecting the images and I wanted to try and tell a story with the images. So as somebody walked around, they would get a sense of my journey. Mm -hmm. Got it all framed, got it hung up. COVID hit. Of course. (laughs) Two days. It was open for two days. <laughs> you know and then they shut I've, it down. <laughs> I've heard that story from so many people. But there was one woman, there was a yoga class in there, and there was one woman that was doing her yoga underneath one of my images, and she said she just couldn't take her eyes off of it, and so she bought it. And so I sold one image. Oh, man. The same instructor of her three assignments says, why don't you do a book? And I thought, okay, you know, I do a lot of sort of story writing with my Flickr stuff and some of my Facebook stuff. And I thought, well, maybe I could work that into a small book of essays. And I really learned a lot. And I had some help with some other people who had done books. And it was a blurb book because I couldn't afford the out front uh, or upfront uh, investment. But it was a fun project. And it was a lot of work, but I'm really proud of it. Um, it, at the time, they were some of my best images. And I thought the essays gave a real sense of what it was like to be out there, what it was like for me to be out there. And, and hopefully it resonated with, uh, I think it did resonate with other people because I actually sold a few copies. <laughs> and then. I had my second show, which was my first real show, and that came about because of Facebook. Um, there was a printer, a uh, master printer uh, here in Berkeley that had been following me and uh, saw my images and PM'd me and said, would you like to do a show? And he has a gallery. And I said, sure. And this gallery was big, and I had to get 25 images together 
And I decided that I would print some of them really, really big. And I thought, you know, this is, this could be my only show. So I'm going to just do it upright. And I had a reception. This was still kind of COVID. So the reception was outdoors, but I had friends that brought in some tents and we had food and wine. And, um, it got, it, was very crowded and very successful but I think the thing that I was most proud of was that it was it was wonderful seeing all of these images in print and it was wonderful taking the attendees on my journey as they walked around this room um, and I don't know I think prints to me are, are one of the best they're so far superior than seeing it on a computer totally Um, and it was just it was a joy uh, to see all of these in print and I was really happy as I walked around the room that people were really enjoying them I mean they really liked them and I thought that was just a really cool thing and uh, so I told myself I'd never do another show because it was such hard work (laughs) but Enough time has gone by, I think, that I, I could probably do it again. And did you say you had a you were in seeing seeing in sixes with lens work? Yes. Um that I mean, was fun. Massive accomplishment right there, I think. Yeah. Uh I was totally shocked. Um I Brooks Chen I'm a fan of Brooks Jensen. I really like him. I know you've had him on your podcast, which was a fascinating podcast. Yeah. Great guy. Yes, I, and I belong to his um, website, podcast, whatever they are. Yeah, um, I got the I got the last one here. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I have the online version, um, and then friends of mine um, get the print version, and we share back and forth. And I've learned about some really interesting photographers uh, from him, as I do with yours. But yeah, seeing in sixes, and that was a real education too, because I'd never put anything together as a series, and I like that. I like the projects, um, and they're yeah. hard. Very hard. Uh, but I want to continue trying to do that, and I have some in mind that I'll um, slowly chip away at. And uh, yeah, seeing in sixes and our magnificent planet. I got oh, yeah. in that twice. Yeah, I got in the one two years ago. I didn't submit last year, but yeah, it's pretty cool to see your images in in, in that publication. Yes, yes, I was. Uh, yeah, I. Um, you know, if I, I don't even know how to say this, but um, I feel like if I died tomorrow, I have done some things with my photography that I that I am quite pleased with and I'm real happy with. And I've met some and hope to continue to meet some really, really wonderful people and photographers. And I'm just enjoying the heck out of this journey. Well, I love that you said that because I know, at least for myself, I, it seems like every week I waver from like, oh, I've done some cool stuff. And then like the next week I'm like, I have done nothing. So it's just, for me, it's like I'm on this roller coaster constantly of feeling like I've accomplished something and then feeling like I haven't done anything. But I think that those lows for me kind of drive me forward. So it's fine. It's fine. 
Yeah, it's uh, all. Yeah, I I get the ups ups and downs, and I was in a down pretty much at the beginning of this year. But if I realistically look back on what I have done, right? There's there's some cool stuff there. Now that doesn't mean I can stop. Right, right, right. Because <laughs> right, I want right. to get better. <laughs> there's well, more. Maybe this is a perfect moment to ask my my last question for you, which is, what's next in your journey? I have some projects in mind. Like I said, I want to do some projects. Um, but I have some more technical skills to learn to be able to accomplish those. And then hopefully, um, hopefully the art that's in my head <laughs> will, will work with those technical skills. I don't know, but that's what I'm trying to do. And it does involve some night things, but, but more than just the night. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of working, working on that. All right. I just hope to grow, keep on growing. I think that's a great goal to have. All right, Marcia. So last, last thing, who would you recommend for the podcast? Okay. A woman named Jan McGuire. She's a nature photographer. And every time I, I, she's mostly on Flickr, but every time I look at her images, in her narratives, I learned so much. She's really, really good at getting animal behavior, whether it's birds, horses, elk. Um, she's just really good. Insects. I have learned so much about uh, insects from her. She's cool. her stuff is just crisp and sharp and informative. She's really good. Um, Pam Dorner. I met her on a workshop about three or four years ago. And she was just a delightful woman, but her photography, she's got a, an affinity for animals and she can just seem to, I mean, I know she works hard at this, but she just seems to pick them just doing the, well, I can't say the right things, but doing interesting things. And um, I love her animal images. She does. She also does landscape. She's down uh, near Apache to Bosque. And uh, she does, she evidently is close enough to go down there quite a bit. And I think some of her images have been in um, the Arizona magazine or is it Arizona? Arizona I wrote it Highways. down. Uh, oh, and she, oh, she also got nature photographer of the year award too. Yeah, and oh. she's coming on the show here soon. So, oh, good. Yeah, oh, she's great. I've got her. I've got her scheduled. I actually reached out to her the exact same day I reached out to you. So, all right. She, well, she's she's a delightful lady and a really good photographer. Yeah, she's been really fun to email. Like, she sends me these long emails. I'm like, oh, like, but let's let's do the podcast. <laughs> yeah, she's much more of an extrovert than I am. <laughs> I, I want to say she self-described herself as an introvert, but I, well, I could be wrong. We'll uh, see. Well, she does a good job of faking it then. <laughs> She's a lovely lady. Lovely. Um, and then another woman named Nancy Wright. Uh, she just retired, but she's been doing photography for quite some time. She originally started with sports photography, and her images have been like in Velo News and um, some of the, the bike racing. She was specialized in that. And she has gone on to do landscape, and she's got a real affinity for water. 
whether it's in the ocean, whether it's uh, streams, waterfalls, and her eye, she sees things. She's really good at, um, God, making whole communities out of sand. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, you look at her images that she does of sand and you see people and you see trees and you just see all kinds of things. And, you know, normally this is stuff that most people just walk over. And she's she's really good. She's she's not well known yet, but um, I think she will be. Um, let's see. It's and then the other person. Oh, Becky Jaffe, and she's the teacher I talked about. And she is um, she's a teacher in real life, but then she also is a photographer and a naturalist. And she knows a lot about nature and she's, uh, also has a wonderful eye in presenting nature in such an artistic, um, look to it. Uh, and she's very creative. Um, and she's very inspiring and brilliant, actually. She's got this whole cult following of which I was going, who is this Becky Jaffe? Until I took one of her classes. I went, Oh my God. She's wonderful. Sold. So, yeah. And then Rick Whitaker, I met him through Flickr. He's become a friend and he's become a mentor. And he is extremely generous with his time. He is an excellent photographer, uh, both technical and artistic. Um, wonderful sense of humor and just, just a really, really good person and excellent photographer and i think he's going to be teaching at yosemite uh this fall um and he's um helped with workshops with uh michael ah, i'm drawing a blank on names i'm sorry he wrote a book on photographing yosemite a long michael time fry. ago michael fry yeah um anyway he's uh i i think rick whitaker would be a, a real interesting uh person to have on your show Perfect. And I could go on, but I'll stop there. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, awesome, Marsha. This has been a lot of fun. And it's always fun to talk to someone who loves night photography. And it, I will say, like, I don't do a lot of night photography anymore. But every time I talk to someone else like you who's doing it a lot more, it always inspires me to get out and do it again. So I appreciate, I appreciate that, if nothing else. Oh, well, yeah, you should get out there. It's a nice place to meditate. You, you need to teach your son about the stars. Um, Actually, um, I can't remember if it was you, but someone had recently meant, uh, it wasn't you, but I, I have a photo I created a couple of years ago. It was, it was like a, it was like a 20, no, it was like a 55 image stitch with a 55 millimeter lens of the Milky Way above one of my favorite scenes. And, my son was up there with me the whole time I captured it because we backpacked up there together and he had a pretty good time. So yeah, it's, it's fun to get him out there and to show him stuff. I mean, obviously it's not as exciting as YouTube or whatever he's in TikTok, <laughs> but you know, it might be later on. Yeah. He'll, I'm, it- I'm keeping my fingers crossed that he'll hopefully <laughs> remember those moments and appreciate them later. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think so. I think they, as kids get older, they go, God, you know, mom and dad weren't as dumb as I thought they were. (laughs) My daddy's actually kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, this has been great. Thank you to Marcia for the wonderful conversation about night photography. I can tell that you have a true passion for this, and I hope you keep the enthusiasm going. It's quite contagious. As always, be sure to check out the links in the show notes to the various subjects we discussed, including some affiliate links for some of the gear that we mentioned. It really does help a lot. Speaking of helping a lot, I want to thank our newest supporter of the podcast on Patreon. Patreon is a platform where you can support the podcast financially. Running this podcast takes a lot more work and time than I think most people realize, and it does cost quite a lot of money to maintain it. I generally sacrifice my weekends and evenings to keep the podcast going, so your support on Patreon keeps me motivated to continue. Truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen to support us. Thank you to those of you that already do, including our newest supporter, Krista Lappin. Thanks, Krista. You rock. It would be great to someday just make the podcast and my photography a full-time gig. However, for that to happen, I need your help. Hit pause, go to Patreon, and help us out. If you can't do that, another great great way to help us is by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify by telling your friends all about the show. Coming up next, we have three more women on the show, including Karen Waller, Valda Bailey, and Deidre Rosenberg. We also will be hosting another Artists Asking Artists session with David Thompson and Candy Watson. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.